So hello and welcome to the Pricing for the Planet podcast, the podcast that explores the intersection of business and sustainability. I'm your host, Fabian Cross, and I'm here to demystify the economic potential of sustainable practices, including the innovative business model they enable, and bring you the latest trends, research and insights in monetizing and pricing sustainability. We believe that going green is not just about responsibility, it's about profitability too. Whether you are a business leader, an entrepreneur, or simply curious about how sustainability can be monetized, our podcasts will provide you with valuable and actionable knowledge. Today, we are thrilled to have Anna E., the ESG Director of WebHelp Group, joining us to share insights and experiences. Thank you very much, Fabien, for having me on your uh, podcast. I'm super excited to be able to share uh, our experience at the at the WebHelp Group. WebHelp Group uh, is a global leader uh, in customer uh, journey and customer experiences. The BPO sector, so business process outsourcing. Yeah. So we work for brands uh, across 60 countries. We have 200 sites across the world and more than 120,000 people. Wow, that's a big number. So... Could you share with us your journey to becoming an ESG director? Of course. <laughs> um, so I've been in WebHelp for six years. Uh, I think I have the opportunity to spearhead the creation of actually several functions, group functions at WebHelp. WebHelp is a, is a very entrepreneurial uh, company. Uh, yes. Our co-founders are still um, within the, within the, the company. Uh, one of the co-founders is still the CEO of the company, actually. I had the opportunity to create the group function for uh, internal communications and knowledge management six years ago. Um, then I managed the um, crisis cell for COVID, so mm -hmm. a little bit less fun. A little crisis. <laughs> <laughs> a little crisis, uh, especially when you have um, to move, because at the, at the time, our industry was really within sites. So you had to move thousands of people from sites to yeah. home uh, and create protocols. So again, it was very entrepreneurial. And this is really at the time when our leadership decided to create the group function for ESG, so environment, social, and governance. Uh, we had ESG activities throughout our regions, but not a group uh, strategy. So it's linked to COVID. So um, or it might influence the fact that you started ESG. Yes, at least we managed to uh, parallelize both. Uh, and uh, a few months after COVID, we managed to, to start the group functions with our ESG ambassadors uh, throughout the regions. So that's my journey at WebHelp. Uh, and I think there's also, to become an ESG um, director, uh, you also need to have inspiration coming from within. Yes, um, absolutely. So I think it's a mix of personal uh, conviction about the, the planet, uh, when you think about your kids, the future of your kids. Um, and also, I think in my case as well, uh, um, a little bit of inspiration around diversity and inclusion. Part of my family was uh, Japanese immigrants in the U.S. Um, at the time of Pearl Harbor. So you can imagine uh, wow. the type of um, uh, conversation about inclusion. I think it comes also from your, your personal uh, experience uh, at home. No, it makes sense. Uh, and I... <laughs> Can you share a little bit about your team structure, how it's organized? Do you have team members, a big team, an international <laughs> team, a local team? So for sure, we have an international uh, team. 
Um, so I report to uh, the group managing director, Sandrina Seraf, uh, who is in charge of corporate affairs and ESG. I think it's very important to have that level of seniority and visibility for ESG. She reports to the CEO, basically. Okay. We have a voice at, at, the, at the table. It's, it's a tremendous accelerator. Uh, we have a small centralized team um, that designs the strategy, the programs. When it comes to environmental program, we have a, a group environment director, for instance, um, or we have someone who's managing the, the Think Human Foundation, which is oh, our yes. endowment fund. Okay. But it's it's a small centralized um, team. Um, and then we work uh, with a network, uh, with a community of ESG ambassadors uh, throughout the entire world uh, of web help. Um, some are dedicated, some are, it's more part of their function, uh, mm. basically. And the goal is to embed more and more ESG in the functions of the facilities, the HRs, the recruitment, the operations, uh, and so on. Because I, I think that's the direction of ESG, that ESG will become part of every single job. And it's not just... You know, a, an yeah. ESG function. To be a component of everything, right? Yes. Cool. Well, perfect transition because one big question we have in this podcast is monetizing sustainability. So in your role, how do you approach the monetization of sustainability? Yes, and I think it's important to stress that sustainability is not just the environment. And we see it more and more that environment and, and, and the social components are um, uh, totally, totally linked. And I think for too many companies, um, they view ESG as a, as a box to tick. Um, um, they have to do it and they don't perceive it as a, as a value driver. And to, if you want to start monetizing um, um, sustainability, you have... Um, to do the contrary. So that's what we do at WebHelp. We try to see where can we bring value. So this is also when we think about the, the um, objectives. Uh, so we set uh, various uh, objectives and KPIs on our ESG strategy. We have three of them on the the people side. Okay. Um, and and why? Because we again, we have thousands of people, um, game changers, we call them at WebHelp. We recruit thousands of people um, every year. So the people side is really where we can make an impact. Uh, at WebHelp, we call our ESG strategy the more movement to remind everyone that we can we can do more for people, more for planet, more for progress, and more for philanthropy uh, every single day. I like that. The more movement. The more movement, Interest. yeah. Interesting. So really in B2B, especially in B2B, it's thinking where is the value that I can deliver, especially with regards to our clients' um, uh, ESG goals themselves. Mm. Um, we start having clients setting themselves goals uh, and they replicate it in, the in their uh, value chain. So this is where we can create value for them. Mm, okay. Yeah, proving them that actually with your ESG, you will actually collaborate. And exactly. I, I like this con because it's like we are moving from like silo companies to ecosystem mm -hmm. where actually you collaborate on subtopics, could be digital, could be ESG. And I think ESG is really driving the transformation because you don't see suppliers anymore. You see collaborators or partners. Mm -hmm. Totally. Super interesting. And do you see this collaboration impacting web help uh, sales or bids or? Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> I think that that's been in the last year or 18 months, the most striking change uh, for me in the sense that probably half of my week I work with sales teams on uh, bids and with account management uh, on crafting projects with their clients. Um, 
and that comes from the fact that now in the RFPs you can you can see up to 20% of the of the grading in the RFP just on ESG. Um, wow. So that's a huge shift. You know, it's not just the price, the technology, the operation, the HR piece, um, but you really you have to prove that um, you're you're doing good and you're delivering well on the on the ESG piece. Um, so the impact is you 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 really have to train the cell. There's a massive effort um, to training. do on, on on training the cells so that they have the good reflex to think. Oh, here um, th there is an opportunity to work with that client and embed in our uh, in our response to proposal a solution uh, linked to linked to ESG. Um, yeah, so it's becoming yeah. a differentiator. So, totally. so you are trying to get like above or better than your competitor and actually lead through ESG to show that you are you know, more advanced. And now it's becoming a big change during like a, like a, a business conversation with your clients or potential clients. Yes, yes. And even the nature of the RFPs sometimes change in the sense that I've seen clients asking for um, delivering let's say, a chat solution, for instance, in Africa with a component of impact sourcing. So uh, let's say 20% of um, the game changers we will hire have to come from impact sourcing channel. And that's that's the blueprint of the RFP. So you cannot you cannot fake it. You know, you cannot invent it. You have to show your track record. That's super interesting about impact sourcing. Not everybody will understand that. And I know that's where you are super, super strong. So can you deep dive a little bit on this? Yes. So in the, in our uh, industry, in the BPO um, sector, uh, impact sourcing um, uh, refers to the fact that clients will choose suppliers who have an intentional approach um, to provide career opportunities to uh, people who usually are excluded from the labor market for wrong reasons uh, because of biases. So. These can be populations like long-term unemployed, um, single parents, uh, people with disabilities, um, young people who don't have a diploma. Um, so there are universal categories, and then you also have very um, uh, localized categories. And we work with NGOs to detect these populations because it's really linked to the location of your site. Um, I think we've always done impact sourcing, uh, but we never really named it as such. Um, when I speak to my colleagues in Morocco about initiatives, so we have language initiatives uh, in, the, in Latin America where we provide free training in partnership with the government. Um, and I tell that to the Moroccan team and they're like, and I, we were doing that 20 years ago, you know, <laughs> we were providing free French classes um, to candidates who didn't have the exact level we needed, um, but if you partner, and that's your point about partnership, um, if you partner with, for instance, governments who have millions to spend in trainings, why not focus on the needs, you know, the needs for languages, for instance. Therefore, with this intentional approach, um, you manage to get them on board on, uh, on your projects, uh, and the results are fantastic. I mean, in our sector, we talk a lot about attrition and retention, for instance. Yes. The, the yeah. appetite for these candidates uh, and these recruits um, to, to, to keep their job, first of all, and then seize any opportunity for development. And that's the, the topic about providing career opportunities, because it's not just becoming an advisor. Then you can become a team leader and then, and then an ops manager and then maybe a quality trainer. Um, 
I think in, in, in WebHelp, we have a huge uh, culture uh, of internal promotion. And it's crucial because the moment you get the new recruits on, let's say, the frontline jobs, but not on, you know, you can recruit in interns in support functions, for instance, as well, through impact sourcing, then they will seize any opportunity to grow within your business. And then you tackle your topic of retention, yeah. performance, ENPS. Um, I love yeah. that. You are creating loyalty exactly. internally. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Talking about customer <laughs> experience, here we go. <laughs> no, that's super interesting. Can you share the example of South Africa? Yes. So South cool. Africa, <laughs> of course, of course. I think South Africa is the first country where... Um, the model, um, the model grew rapidly because of the size, um, uh, the size of the the pool of talent we could target. Because in South Africa, unemployment rate going through the roof above sixty percent some years. So you have the talent pool, you have the companies who need to hire, uh, and in between you have partners like Harambi, um, which is the partner we uh, we we part we worked with um, originally who will create, supported by the state, what we call work readiness programs. And these programs will teach everything the young people will need to know before entering the workforce. So what is, what is it to have you know, a boss? What is it yeah. to work in shifts? Um, what is it to be on time, et cetera, et cetera. And the best thing is that the more the, the, the NGOs know there is a pipeline, the more they can customize the program. So for instance, they can go deeper into what it is to work for the BPO sector. Um, and I'm thinking of Malaysia, for instance, and the Philippines, where they developed this kind um, of training and work with uh, an, an organization, organization called LP for Youth, where we start tackling what is the BPO sector and there are opportunities uh, for the young people there as well. Um, and once you've done that work readiness program, and that's what happened with Harambee, they couldn't do that for every company because other companies than, than us are, are looking to recruit. So um, they start transferring the knowledge so that we can internalize the work readiness programs. And now we have a full skills accelerator program and on top of that, a retail skills accelerator. Um, so the youth go through the work readiness the BPO sector um, uh, induction, and then skills accelerator on retail because we have lots of uh, retail clients there. And again, the results uh, have been tremendous. Uh, the team has been great in monitoring the, the KPIs on the pilot. So we have different pilots such as um, a permanent model, um, a peak model. So the clients were so happy about the permanent model that they asked the team to do the peak season. So the peak season is, for instance, um, um, uh, around November, December, uh, where, where sales go through yeah. the roof. Christmas time. Yeah, you have to have more more people on board, okay? So, uh, yes, it's temporary jobs, but um, you train them first, then you have them in the pipeline, and then you can call them to fill in attrition from January um, onwards. And the clients were the ones asking us to do the peak season on the on that model on this program yeah so oh, interesting so they can retain and then get them later on yeah super interesting and and that's what i really like with this case because we we like to talk about monetization it's like here it's a different thinking about monetization because it's not directly selling you know at a higher price or you know at a higher margin it's really reducing your internal cost of attrition or your turnover and that's what makes the difference. So you are doing kind of good from an ESG point of view, but you have a business impact 
by doing so? Yes, you have to be a bit patient and think long term um, because indeed you have to, for instance, invest in a, let's say, a little bit of me looking for the associations, um, looking for designing the models uh, by the teams uh, locally in the long term. If you, f if you do your business case, we know the, the, the model works and there is a return uh, on investment. Yes, that's, and I think it's part of ESG as well. It's it's changing the mindset from very, very short-term, purely financial model to a more 3P model, long-term or longer-term, but, but way broader in terms of what we are looking. It's not just financial impact. It's, yeah, it's impact on the planet, on the people, and of course, on, on the monetary point of view, but longer, longer-term. Yes, exactly. So that's why we... Originally, we said we wanted to recruit 5% of all our recruits globally on impact sourcing. I think it was very conservative, but because we realized the first year we were doing 10% already. And now yeah. every year we increase by 1%. Last year we did 11%. This year we want to do 12 And in 2025, 15% of all our recruits. So it's... It's wow. just like any other recruitment channel, the job boards, the referrals, um, the website. Um, yeah. Tricky question. Do you think your client might be able actually to pay more for those kind of like special skills or special ESG program? Or do you think it's like they want the same price than the other? They just want a company or a partner doing that as part of their normal business model? I don't know yet if they want to pay more, but I know they are willing to attribute a certain part of their budget to that kind of models. Um, I have two examples. Um, one, um, so it's it's more localized in France, um, but I heard from, from potential prospects that they had money to spend on diverse um, uh, suppliers and suppliers um, who were hiring uh, people with disabilities. Uh, and and in their procurement strategy, it is set. It can also be dictated sometimes by the government's uh, requirements, but you know there are procurement money directed for these programs. And more recently, we had a client um, who came to us because they they have set internally a target to to impact three thousand people through their supply chains. Um, through impact hiring. So they're they're looking for suppliers uh, like us who will help them reach that target of 3,000. So for that, they need suppliers. So they need suppliers that they will that they will pay. So we need to be ready for that. So, so now it's just like you get a seat at the table, right? It's not anymore like if, if you want to play the game, you have to be like ESG ready and actually be a player in this field. And if you are not anymore... You, I mean, you, you don't have any business anymore. Yes, because you cannot participate yeah. to the RFPs that state, um, I want this type of operation in this location with, in that instance, impact sourcing. You're disqualified yeah, if you disqualified. don't have any impact sourcing in that case. Super interesting. No, great. Maybe one question, it's like more about advice. Like, do you have any advice for other businesses looking to monetize sustainability indirectly like WebHelp did or willing actually to explore more the social aspect of ESG? I think my first advice is really to um, embedding it in the model to be authentic because it's not something you can add like a cherry uh, on the on the cake. 
Um, and second advice, be ready. It's a long journey, so be ready to spend a lot of time um, onboarding, explaining the model, um, and doing pilots because on small on a small scale, so that you can prove um, your results. If we didn't have the, the the figures from South Africa, for instance, it would be harder to convince internally that the model works and that we can do uh, more and more pilots. Yeah, so start somewhere, prove the value, and then scale it. Yes. And how do you manage the relationship with sales? Do they embrace what you are doing? Do they consider that it's a seat? at the table, are they kind of like, oh no, it's another initiative, I'm, I'm, I'm wasting my time? How do they react? I think they embrace it because um, they are seeing the trends and it's also very rewarding uh, for, for the sales to win projects that are related to ESG. I mean, usually people um, are happy when they're working with the ESG team, you know, because it's a... Um, it's good projects for the planet, for the society. Yeah. So, so they're embracing it, but they're they're still a journey to understand the concepts, uh, understand that ESG is not impact sourcing, that there are different terminologies. Not to mention all everything related to carbon footprints, because yeah. carbon footprints um, necessitates to um, to understand the scopes and uh, and demystify also sometimes. Um, um, yeah, so sometimes people w would have biases uh, or misconceptions, uh, and we, we also need to debunk that with them. And do you see actually an impact on the retention and loyalty of the sales team as well? Because now you are actually opening a new door, which is like, okay, I'm, I'm making an impact thanks to my job at Web Help. And I think that could be really interesting to see like either a, um, a boost in the sales target or in the retention, because both are super interesting for a, a BPO company. I think what I see more is sales being um, more attentive to ESG per, per default clients. So clients who would be at the core ESG uh, and uh, and their passion, what I see is their, their enthusiasm when we would answer for a bid for uh, a client who is uh, really sustainable. They will put all their attention in it. Um, ah, involvement. Yes. Like they are more engaged. Yeah. Huh. Engagement. Yeah. Super interesting. And, and maybe the last one, it's the future of ESG. Very, very <laughs> uh, broad topic. But uh, what do you see for the future of ESG? Do you see some trends coming up? Some development? New ideas to test? So I think First of all, in the future, there's no way to do without ESG. It's literally everywhere. And you can see the change, or at least I can tell for friends, the change in the in the, the media voice um, of ESG. Uh, little by, we all wanted to go um, faster, okay? But um, you get more and more articles, everyday sections uh, on that. And like any company, we're in the society, so our... Um, our employees and any employees um, is probably more and more concerned vis-a-vis -vis their their own company. Yeah. Um, so we can see also uh, more employees um, being sometimes more vocal uh, or being more passionate internally about um, the topic. So in general, for companies, um, it's like a wave. I think yeah. that's that's coming. That it's not just business and clients. It's the people within the company as well. Um, it's uh, but yeah, it's the it's the clients you meet and you know they look at the panel that you have in your room. 
and then notice right away if you have diversity or not uh, in the uh, in in the in the sales team, for instance, that you yeah. that you present. So it's gonna be uh, ubiquitous for sure, and I think it's a question of uh, of speed. Um, so you have to take the time to prepare your methodology, uh, but then go and scale really. Super interesting. Any advice on really translating what you are doing around ESG into a value driver with this kind of like monetizing point of view? I think it's really just like when you analyze the the, the business of the company that you're trying to sell to in, in B2B in that case. Um, just not don't forget to look at their sustainability report. Um, just like their yeah. annual report, you know, that's that's but always my. How many people are not doing it? <laughs> <laughs> um, because um, yeah, or or find interviews of the the CEO, the ESG, the yeah, and and look at their evolution. Um, more and more businesses start to have adjacencies um, that tackle ESG because they cannot revolutionize the entire business um, through ESG. But pay attention, uh, pay attention to that. Anae, thank you so much. Do you have anything else to add or do you like to cover? Thank you very much for bringing the topic uh, in the in the pricing. This is something we started a year ago uh, with Sandrine um, to, to look at. Um, would clients be willing to pay more? Would clients be mm -hmm. willing to have an entire uh, offer? Um, so we talked a lot about um, impact sourcing today, uh, but I think there is a topic about uh, where do you locate your operations as well. We didn't talk about the sites, um, the physical buildings, yeah. but there is a trend. Um, so every new buildings, for instance, we, we open, we try to um, uh, have the latest top-notch uh, standards uh, mm. for that. Uh, and again, there's a long-term value, uh, an engagement from your clients who come to the site, of your uh, employees who comes to the site uh, as well. Um, oh, yeah, that's yeah, that's a good that's a good one. Yeah, actually, you can actually you can monetize the fact that you are super green with your building. That's the two main assets of Wellbe: people first, and then and buildings. buildings. Any and in B two B, you enter uh, as a company the scope three of of your clients. Yeah. So in many in any every single RFP now, we have the question of um, of uh, the carbon footprint. Yeah. How do you yeah. reduce your carbon footprint to reduce your client's carbon footprint? Hmm. Again, back to the ecosystemic way of thinking. Exactly. I love that. Interesting. Huh. Well, maybe the next one we will go to the Web Help uh, office in Paris. I, I know the I know this office. I know it's super well. It's brand new. Yes. So perfect. Anais, thank you again. It was super interesting. Very, very interesting points. And yeah, I, I wish we will do uh, another one soon. Thank you very <laughs> much, Fabien. I wish too. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Pricing for the Planet podcast. We've enjoyed having this conversation, exploring how our choices can directly impact the sustainability of our planet. And we hope you found it insightful and inspiring too. If you want to stay connected with us, learn more and continue this sustainability journey, please subscribe to our B-Weekly Digests on www pricingfortheplanet.com. There, you will find the latest updates, insights, and innovative strategies about sustainable practices and pricing. But we also need your help. By leaving a comment and rating this podcast, you are not just 
giving us feedback, you are also helping boost the visibility of these critical discussions. Every comment, every like, every share counts. They help us reach more people and spread the word about our mission. And finally, if you've been moved by what you have heard today, we encourage you to share this podcast with your friends, your family, your colleagues, and anyone else who might be interested. Every person you introduce to Pricing for the Planet is another ally in our collective mission to make the world more sustainable. Together, we can take small action that will create big changes. Remember, each of us has a role to play and every action, no matter how small, can make a difference. So let's use the power of our collective voice to change the world for the better. Thank you for your time, your interest, and your commitment to sustainability. Be well.